Welcome to the Women of Wild podcast, where we explore what it means to be a woman. We will be discussing real life challenges from being a daughter, a wife, a mother, a single mom, and beyond. We're two friends living very different lives. One is married with all girls. The other is divorced with all boys. We're perfect bookends to speak from opposite perspectives on all the things. Our mission is to search out the heart of a woman and to pour into you wherever you are with real life wisdom, actionable steps, and application of the topics we discuss to continue our self-development into a wild woman. That is a woman of wisdom, impact, love, and dignity. So let's go. Women of Wild podcast is committed to helping women in all areas of wisdom, impact, love, and dignity. I have many women in my life who have been impacted by the trauma of childhood sexual abuse, and I've recently become connected with an amazing resource that we want to share with our listeners. Sapria exists to liberate individuals and society from child sexual abuse and its lasting impacts. They provide healing educational retreats in Utah and Georgia, survivor support groups around the world offered in four languages, and online healing resources for adult female survivors. Sapria also provides online prevention resources and community education courses and materials for parents and caregivers to reduce the risk of abuse from occurring. All resources and retreats are offered at no charge, thanks to the generosity of donors. You can learn more at sapria.org. That's S-A-P-R-E-A dot org. We'll have a link to the website in our show notes. Today, we have a very special guest, Chris Yaden. He is the managing director of Sapria, which is a nonprofit committed to liberating individuals and society from childhood sexual abuse and its lasting impacts. Chris is responsible for managing all operations and services of Sapria in both Utah and Georgia. He has spent most of his professional career in startup executive management with an emphasis in operations, marketing, and sales. Since joining Sapria in 2015, he has brought a valuable skill set to the organization and a commitment to addressing the epidemic of childhood sexual abuse. His expertise centers on increasing awareness of the epidemic and educating the public on best practices for prevention and the healing services available to survivors. Chris has been featured across several regional and national media platforms where he is often requested as an industry thought leader and expert. We are very honored to have him here with us today and to share more about Sapria and its resources. Welcome, Chris, and thank you so much for being with us today. Sally, Debbie, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and look forward to a meaningful and, and positive conversation. So we were wondering, how did you get involved with Sapria to begin with? Yeah, so some of our founding board members I'd worked together previously and, and had a friendship with that dates back many, many years and they reached out to me and asked me to come start Sapria. Uh, I had had a lot of experience in startups in other industries, and they wanted me to bring that approach to the nonprofit sector and the issue of child sexual abuse specifically. And child sexual abuse had impacted some of my close uh, family. So it was an easy yes for me to take what skills I would learned and, and pulled together from the business world along with a desire to help specifically female survivors of childhood sexual abuse, much like my family who had experienced it. 
So you've been there from the beginning. Yeah, I was the very first employee uh, and we're coming up on eight years in January. Uh, coming up shortly will be eight years and I haven't regretted it for a minute. Uh, as I like to tell people, they ask me, hey, do you like what you do? Is it hard? Is it, you know, how do you work in that every day? And I just, I just tell people when you're focused on providing hope, even around a, a topic that is horrific, like child sexual abuse. But if you get to focus on the hope, you get to help people overcome negative experiences or help parents prevent negative experiences. That's really motivating and it's very powerful. And I come to work every day and I feel joy. I feel invigorated. I feel energy. And yes, some of the stories are hard, but eight years in, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, as I like to say to people, uh, my work week, Fridays are not a celebration and Mondays are not a bummer. And that's because I love what I do so much. Amazing. I would love for you to share. Your statistics are pretty amazing. That's one of the things I was really impressed with, how much the women actually gain help and hope who have attended retreat and taken advantage of many of the other resources. Before we get into statistics, why don't you tell us about the resources that Sapria does offer? Yeah, and I'm, I'll be happy to share some of the uh, statistics as we go along. So at Sapria, we, we offer six services and approximately half of them around healing and half of them around prevention. Uh, really quickly, uh, we have our, our longest standing service, which is a four-day in-person retreat, followed by nine-week asynchronous online course that people can participate in. That's, uh, that service has serviced over 4,500 women at this point out of our uh, Georgia and Utah locations. And it's had tremendous outcomes. So think about this, okay? 4,500 women have come through this experience. And we've uh, done third-party research since 2018 on the outcomes. What happens with these women? We track them for 12 months after the experience. And on average, 37% of these women, or excuse me, these women experience a 37% reduction in post-traumatic stress. So what does that mean in the real world? What that means is, you know, a woman uh, is going to the grocery store, just minding her own business, doing her thing. She walks by a guy that is not her perpetrator, has nothing to do with her perpetrator, but for some reason smells like or reminds her of her perpetrator. Her brain triggers into a panic attack and uh, she has a panic attack right there in the store. That's what post-traumatic stress looks like. So we reduce that by 37%, meaning that's happening 37% less than it was before. And then what we also do is uh, the ability to cope uh, through well-being indicators that we track. Uh, we see an average increase of 45% increase in well-being indicators. What that means is when they do occur, they're 45% more equipped to deal with them, to manage through the triggers that they experience. So when you take that combination of reducing the amount of times that their post-traumatic stress symptoms are surfacing and increase their capability of coping with them when they do, it literally changes their day-to-day -day life. 
And that's why when you talk to people that have been through our retreat, especially those a couple years down the road that have really put in the work uh, to apply the tools that we teach, uh, they describe it most often as life-changing. It fundamentally changes their life. So that's a great service. Um, we also offer support groups. So uh, based on the same curriculum, we teach a retreat in the same principles. Uh, survivors can start either online or in-person support groups in their communities. So we have these spread across the United States and even internationally where, where groups have started these support groups by survivors for survivors. They get together and uh, learn about how to heal in a supportive environment. So those are the support groups. The third item that, that, that we offer is online healing resources. So think of the type of healing resources I consume from the comfort of home. So when I'm at home and I'm like, I want to learn better how to ground myself when uh, a symptom surfaces, we have resources that teach them how to do that uh, from the comfort of, of home without them having to go anywhere or do anything other than get online. So then on the prevention side, we, we also have online resources for parents where parents can learn the day-to-day -day things they can do to reduce the likelihood their child will be abused or the likelihood that their child will abuse another. We also uh, have community education. So anybody that's interested in the topic that wants to be an advocate in their community can come learn how to present our curriculum to their communities. And uh, those communities uh, uh, are taught all over the country. And then uh, the last thing, in fact, I apologize, I skipped over it on the healing side is our healing webinar, which is a four hour online webinar that kind of takes the best of from retreat. And it's ideal for someone that's not quite sure if they want to go to retreat yet, and wants to dip their toe into healing to see if they're ready to go or for those that can't make it to our, our Georgia or Utah locations. Uh, so that healing webinar uh, is appropriate for them. So those are our six services and, and we're really proud of the work we do and the impact we're having. Can you tell me how the name Sapria came about? Yeah, so um, we, we rebranded uh, fairly recently um, and many people ask us, is that an acronym? Uh, if so, what does it mean? And the answer is no, it's not an acronym. But during that rebranding process, we were doing some acronym work. And there were some acronyms that got us close, but we didn't quite like them. And so we were just playing around with, with the words. And uh, Sapria hit, and it, it was our, our, our board chair and our founder, Shalane Maxfield, you know, just said, that that's it. That's it. As if she had remembered it before, you know, for... For her, and, and I know you emphasize a faith community, for her, it was very much a spiritual faith-based experience to say, yeah, that, that, that's it, and, and that's important, uh, important to her, and it's become important to all of us, uh, that experience. So that's where it comes from. It does, it's a proper noun, so it doesn't, it's not derived from another meaning. Uh, we hope that we get to define what it means. And we hope that definition, when people hear the word Sapria, they they think of hope and healing from child sexual abuse. Nice. And you have Utah and Georgia. Which came first? Uh, Utah came first. Uh, so 
we, we were founded in Utah, started here. Um, and I think it's been three, three and a half years ago, almost that we started our Georgia operations. We're located in Georgia. So I'm curious what brought you to Georgia? Uh, there are so many things we did a, we did a very analytical approach to, uh, choosing our second location. We knew we wanted an East, Eastern U S Western U S model. Uh, because a lot of people that come for in-person services drive instead of fly. So we wanted to be accessible to most of America within a day's drive. And, uh, you know, in Utah, particularly Salt Lake City, it's very central in the West, meaning you're within a day's drive to anybody from the West Coast to the the Western half of the Midwest. Atlanta is a little further south, but you still have kind of that central feel a little bit between east and west. So other than, you know, the the far northeast and maybe up in the Dakotas, Michigan area, uh, we're able to be within a day's drive. So that was a big part of it. Um, interestingly, the community vibe of the Atlanta area and Salt Lake City is very similar. It's very uh, pro-community, community-friendly. A lot of people come together to... Um, do good things. So it had a very similar feel. Um, we had done some uh, demographic research. And when we look at uh, races and ethnicities, we were serving uh, most races and ethnicities proportionally to the U.S. population of those races and ethnicities, with one exception, and that is uh, Black and African Americans, was uh, that population was being underserved. Utah has good diversity when it comes to uh, Latin Pacific Islanders, but doesn't have a heavy black or African-American community. So because of that, we weren't serving as many as we felt like we we, sh- we should and making it accessible to black and African-Americans. So uh, Atlanta was an easy choice from that perspective to make it more ex- accessible to the black and African-American community to provide a place that was more familiar that they would feel comfortable coming to. So those are some of the factors. There's other things, but uh, we made the right choice. I'll say that we love being in uh, Salt Lake city and and Atlanta. Uh, There's amazing supportive communities uh, that, that throw their weight behind us uh, from both sides of the country. And we really like how, how it's turned out. Well, we're glad you're here. Do you see any other chapters coming up at any point or is it going to stay to you know, the East-West model? Yeah. So uh, we anticipate our next uh, in-person expansion or physical expansion will be uh, in Europe. Um, oh, wow. That's where we expect to go next. We, we do have pretty good demand from, from European countries. Uh, and where we feel pretty accessible to people in the U.S., it's a fairly easy flight for anybody in the U.S. to get either Atlanta or Utah, and for most people to drive, we feel like the next the next stop needs to be international and Western Europe's likely going to be uh, that, that next stop. That's exciting. It is. It's awesome. Yeah. So I want to ask you, I alluded to this in the before we started recording, but I do some trauma therapy with clients, and I have a hard time convincing them to check out Supriya. I was like, you know, you could just go to the website and look at the resources or 
you know, go to the support group online and you don't even have to really say anything, you know, just check it out. And there's such a hesitation in, I have a hard time, I guess, I don't know if I'm hard, if it's hard for me to convince them to check it out or if it's just such a hard topic to even pursue that kind of healing. But I would love for you to share how you go about or how Supriya reaches women. You know, they're, they're working with me. So on some level, they're ready to heal. They have that little bit of healing that they're ready to do. But I know that their healing would be better if they had more support in their life, that that just multiplies it immensely. Yeah. So let me just start out by saying your experience is normal. It would be abnormal for them to uh, readily seek uh, services like ours. So I'll answer the question of how do we overcome that? But I think it's also worth a little bit of time to understand why it's normal. Um, Sexual abuse is rooted, uh, uh, particularly the trauma associated with sexual abuse, is rooted in shame. Um, And that uh, is due to a lot of reasons. Uh, A lot of the stigma that we as communities and society have placed on uh, sexual abuse is a big part of that. Uh, The the nature of being violated sexually is, is, that's a very intimate violation. There's, there's nothing more intimate that can be violated than, than something sexually. So that in and of itself, just our core, um, who we are as humans does not respond, uh, respond super well to that type of trauma. And so that induces shame. So when you look at what's common across almost all survivors of sexual abuse, there are a few items and one of the biggies is shame. So when you understand that an individual that is experiencing uh, trauma from child sexual abuse is fighting a daily fight with shame, it's easier to understand why the thought of going somewhere that they don't yet feel safe with or in is very daunting for them. Uh, It's very daunting. It's scary. And, you know, the thought that, hey, I'm going to go to this retreat and there's going to be other people I don't know. And I'm going to have this big label on me that says I'm a sexual abuse survivor. That is really scary for survivors. Um, So, now that now now that we understand um, what the challenge is, we can start to understand how do we overcome that challenge. Um, there's nothing more important than helping a survivor feel safe, and you do that by making sure they feel like they are in control mm-hmm. of their healing journey. So. We, we are very calculated in how we interact with survivors to make sure that they are making choices and they feel empowered to make those choices all along the way and that we are not trying to force them or pressure them into making choices. So that's really important to establish trust. Another thing to, that's important to establish trust is we rely heavily on... Um, on uh, word of mouth 
uh, and that word of mouth, when they have a trusted person around them that refers them, those are the ones that are most likely to come. In fact, we did a study and 91% of our retreat attendees have actually referred a loved one to the program. So when, when, when you get it started, it starts snowballing. So, mm-hmm. you know, the first survivor kind of takes that leap of faith and goes out there. But then the community of survivors that she engages with, maybe it's her sister that was also abused or a cousin or, you know, someone in their church group that she knows or whatever it is. When she comes back and says, I went and this was this was worth it and it's powerful, it really starts to break down some of those barriers and the benefit starts to outweigh the, the difficulty of the shame. So, you know, I get asked all the time, hey, I, my sister really could use this, but she's not wanting to engage. My advice to that person is very simple. Make sure healing's always on her terms. Be there as a support and, and as an advocate, but don't pressure them to go. If they come before they're ready to come, they will not obtain the results that it's designed to obtain. And maybe it won't do harm, but it won't do good either. It'll be neutral. So it's really important to put that power in their hands and be an advocate. So it's more the approach of, hey, I want you to be aware of this is available. I want you to have choices in your healing. It's more that type of approach than, hey, you should really go to this. It would really help you. Does that make sense how we approach it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and as you were talking, I I have one friend that did go on retreat. But we've known each other about eight years. I trust. And I I have that trust with her. And I I told her about it. She's like, yeah, there's no way I'm doing that. And then after a while, I introduced her. Jocelyn was nice enough to get on a Zoom call with us and talk about Sapria. And so she got to kind of meet her with me, with her. And then... She was thinking she would go next summer, so she applied. She's a um, a teacher, and she ended up getting in like right before school started. Yeah, <laughs> and, and was terrified. It was. She says it's the hardest thing she's ever done. But she, my background is in Al-Anon, which is twelve step work, and I said there's something powerful about being with people who get what you're going through. Therapy's great, but they're having that room full of people who understand, who've been there, who know you. You're not alone. And she said, I finally get that. And a couple days into retreat, she texted me and said, I actually feel safe here. And I want to share that on here because she doesn't feel safe anywhere. She feels safe at my house and a few other places. But like that's such a big... um, Thing for her to say and that speaks really highly of Sapria that she could feel safe in this unknown environment there so you do an amazing amazing job at taking care of these women and supporting them and you know, and she had a hard time she had a, a trigger there even where the person teaching a kickboxing class reminded her of her perpetrator and she had a, a freeze a shutdown moment and the counselor walked her through it. And so it was such a hard week, but it also was such a impactful week. And she's, 
in contact with the girls she went with and she has that community and the support groups. And I just, I share that because there, it's a powerful thing to be in a community of people who understand. And she said, driving up to where they meet, she's with this group of people. And the one thing they know about each other is the one thing they don't want anybody to know about each other, like you said. <laughs> so that was such a, a an awkward moment but now they're good friends and that bonds them once you get past that. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right on. And her experience is, is the norm. It's what most people experience. And uh, it's, it's, it's why I'm, um, I'm not, I'm not surprised anymore, but I'm amazed by uh, these women and their courage to heal. Um, You know, they're, they're 20 years, 30 years out. 15 years out from being in that abusive environment and you know how how easy is it to just keep burying it and let it negatively impact you and your family it takes so much courage to say i'm worth it to heal Mm -hmm. um and and i want to heal from something they didn't deserve and they didn't ask for and uh, they're paying the price for someone else's choice and the courage it takes to own it and say, yeah, it, it's, it's, there's all sorts of injustice here, but I'm going to own my healing and I'm going to, I'm going to face it and deal with it. That's, that's courage in all its greatest forms. I bet you have met a lot of heroes. What is the age range that you serve? Yeah, so uh, we serve adult women who were sexually abused as children. So anybody that's 18 and older that was abused up through age 18 is eligible uh, for our uh, services. And um, the most common demographic or age that comes is is between 35 and 55. So think kind of that midpoint of mid-40s. and, and there's a reason for that. Um, survivors, they, they really do just kind of bear with it and grit their teeth through it. But as researchers often describe it, uh, trauma eventually presents its bill mm. and that bill has to be paid. Um, and so that's why you see the most common age is midlife. Uh, you know, and we've had, we our the oldest woman we've had come through is 78 uh, and Talk about courage, right? Uh, wow. Talk about someone to celebrate, uh, someone in the twilight or at least towards the twilight of their life, still finding the courage to say, "It's, I, it's, I'm worth it," and healing's worth it. Uh, that was that. That's very powerful. So uh, we get women of all ages, but the the bulk are between 35 and 55, kind of that mid midlife range is where most women come. Sally was sharing with me that on the application, you ask, what is your favorite food? <laughs> Why uh, is that? You know, I, I'm not exactly sure. That one I'm going to say, I don't know too. Um, well, there was a day probably seven, eight years ago when I was in those details, but I'm not in those details right now. What I will tell you is this, we have uh, a culinary team at, at the retreat and they are true professionals. Uh, uh, good food and, and eating is part of healing. 
uh, taking care of our body because because trauma stores not just in the brain but in the body. So mm-hmm. learning to engage that body in healing practices, including uh, eating eating uh, in a healthy but and nutritious but still tasty way, is a part of our retreat experience. So we have a very talented culinary team that uh, that helps demonstrate for these women that they can take care of their body from a nutritional standpoint and have it still taste good and have a good experience with food. So uh, it may have something to do with that. I don't know, but uh, that's what I do know. It might be um, one of the surprises, but I know that they cooked uh, my friend's favorite meal (laughs) for one of the meals. That's awesome. That was special to her. And one of the things too, that was kind of funny And I think, you know, each person, each woman is unique and the the experience might be unique, but it's the the healing and the thoughts and the trauma. You're not alone in that. And when she was going about a week before retreat, she texted me one morning and said, you know, maybe I should give up my spot to somebody else. I'm already in counseling. There might be somebody who needs it more. I think I'm okay. (laughs) You know, she's trying to talk herself out of it. And before I even responded to that text, she sent me a video that she had just opened up an email from Sapria that said, if you're thinking that you don't need to go on this retreat and that you should give up your spot to somebody else, (laughs) that is not true. You deserve to go. You know, those aren't the exact words, but it was it was almost the exact text that she had sent me that they had already they were ready (laughs) for her feelings and thought knowing that was coming. And it was just. We laugh about it, kind of, but Sapria was one step ahead of her all the way. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder, like, have, did that just come from years of experience? Of, I don't know if you're part of that, but yeah, I'm just amazed. I, I do, yeah, I'm happy to address that. And I, 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 I feel like I can speak to this one and uh, played an interesting role in, in this kind of thinking. And early on... Um, uh, we noticed that pattern. It was very common that people felt like uh, someone else deserves it more than me. Someone else's trauma was was worse than mine. Uh, I don't want to take somebody's spot. Someone else deserves to heal. I'm doing okay. Uh, I'll be okay. We 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 heard this dialogue, and we have very a very very talented clinical team that have worked in the trauma space for a long long time. And they immediately recognize this as what's called the trauma voice, uh, also referred to in our space as the shame voice. And that shame just kind of sends these messages into your head. And it's just your brain responding to the trauma. And so these messages kind of nag at survivors. So um, it, it is very much on purpose that we address messaging around that, so much so that Early on in our history, I wrote a blog. Uh, it was uh, titled The Forgotten Survivor. And the whole point of the blog was to say this retreat was created for you, meaning you, the person that thinks someone else deserves it more, or th- mm-hmm. that thinks that you're doing okay and okay is good enough, or that you think uh, someone else's trauma was worse than yours. Um, there are plenty of crisis services that deal with the worst of the worst circumstances, the horrific stories that you see on the news every day. 
and uh, they don't deserve healing more than other people. Their circumstances are different, but a lot of our services and communities are really uh, geared around that crisis. We purposely created our services for that adult woman who was abused as a child, and it's now 20 or 30 years later, and she's still dealing with the post-traumatic stress, and it hasn't been resolved, and that storm is circling inside of her. We designed this retreat for her. This service is for her. So when she thinks, well, someone that was just raped needs to be here, our service isn't for that person. They need different services. Our for services for you, for the person that thinks someone needs it more, where that shame voice is saying your trauma wasn't as bad, where it only mm-hmm. happened once. Uh, you know, from our perspective, once was way too many times. And you deserve to heal. And we want to make that message really, really clear to survivors. You have a place. You have a spot. We designed this for you. And uh, someone else doesn't need it more than you. Uh, someone else doesn't deserve it more than you. And so acknowledge that shame voice. Say, I know why I know why my, my brain's saying this. I'm going to acknowledge it. But then I'm going to move on and, and move forward anyway. That's awesome. I love how you how you give it a label like that because then it's something that we can grasp it's a behavior attached to a name and now we know what it is that's so good and so everything that you've said so far all the services the two locations the retreats all the resources you have online the staff culinary staff all this that you have is all based on donations right it's all i mean i just want to reiterate this this is Free. I had no idea anything like this existed until Sally told me about it. Yeah, it is free and that's on purpose as well. When that shame voice is screaming at you and says, like we were just talking about that, hey, someone else needs this more. It also says it's not worth paying money for. So mm-hmm. we just said we need to remove that particular barrier. And we've had very, very generous donors. We need more every day. Uh, I don't want to say that uh, we don't we don't need more. We need to get our services to more people. Uh, they are amazing services that more people need to know about. They work, and we need to spread them far and wide. So while I celebrate that we've had 4,500 women come through our retreat, we need tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of women going through those services. And that takes funding. And so uh, we're going to continue to push hard to find people that are willing to get behind this, that are willing to, you know, to to donate uh, their resources, their time, their funds, whatever resources they have. And uh, we believe that these women deserve to have that barrier removed and that they should be made available free of charge to them. So, um Uh, that's our model and that's our plan. And we're grateful for the generous donors that make it possible. I love that model. That's just complete wisdom. It wasn't, I mean, as far as like the level of injustice that they still have to face and hold and make that decision on making at least that part free is the least we can do as a society. So I love that so much. We are probably about where we can, start wrapping up, but is there anything else you would like to share before we do that? Uh, an important message that I, I always like to share when I have the opportunity, it's a very simple message and it's a message 
directly to survivors. Um, the first part of that message is hope and healing are possible. Um, hope and healing are possible. And I hope as a survivor, you just let that settle in. Um, when you've been dealing with something for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, it feels like hope and healing are no longer possible. When you've tried things over and over again, they haven't quite worked. It feels like hope and healing are not possible. But I, I, I am telling you, hope and healing are possible. So that's the first thing I like to tell people. Second thing I like to tell survivors is we believe you and we trust you. You are not broken. You are a powerful individual. And we have tools that you can use as a powerful individual to address your trauma. A lot of uh, services for individuals that have been through horrific experiences try to fix people. We don't fix people. We don't heal people. We invite them to come learn how to heal. What we offer them is the path, the tools, the support, the unconditional love, that safe environment, because we believe in you that, that as a powerful individual, you have everything you need to heal if we can just give you that path and those tools. So we'll provide that part and, and you'll go do the work and we believe in you. So along with hope and uh, healing is possible, that we believe in you message is really, really important accompanied with that you're not broken message. You may feel broken. A lot of survivors tell us that they're broken, but you are not broken. The fact that you survive something like this and continue on is a testament to your courage and your power. And we believe, we believe you and we believe in you. And we're going to show that in what we do. And the last message that I like to share with, with survivors is there are people in this world that care. Um, sexual abuse has been swept under the rug for a long time. It's starting to emerge, but there's still a lot of stigma and shame associated with you. But there are pockets in our country and around the world, uh, including this podcast, being willing to have us on, including my voice, to say there are people that care. Uh, they care about what you went through. They care about the fact that you can uh, that you have the opportunity to heal. And they care about providing that opportunity for you. People do care. You're not alone. I love that. And I think it's powerful coming from a man <laughs> saying you. that to the women who have been mostly hurt by men. Yep. To yeah. hear. Yeah. And we as men need to take ownership over that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all do. We need to work in unison. Yeah. Everybody needs to work together to solve this problem. But um, I believe we as men need to take ownership over this problem. Be protectors. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I, that's a powerful message. And I really hope we were talking earlier, if we can help one woman, but hopefully more just by hearing this message, you know, that's what we hope for. And thank you so much for coming on. We are going to have the website to Sapria and on the website, I'm assuming you have a place to donate if somebody is interested Absolutely. in doing that. Definitely. It's right there on the homepage as well as links to all our resources. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And I've just, I'm with you and hoping to spread this message as far as we can. 
Well, thanks for having me. It's been awesome to be with both of you, Sally and Debbie. Nice meeting you, Chris. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. Let us know what you liked and what your main takeaways were. We'd also love to know what topics you'd want to hear about on future episodes. To connect with us further on social media or to learn more about our services, click on the links in the show notes or email us at womenofwildpodcast at gmail.com. And if you know anyone that would benefit from hearing this episode, please share it. To continue the discussion about this episode, join us in our private Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. Until next week, stay wild. <laughs>